Thank you all for braving the elements or whatever and coming out to be with us today. Uh, I'm excited about being with you. I'm excited about sharing something uh, this morning. So um, let's just dive right in. Okay. Let's look in Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to touch on some things with John's gospel. I'm just going to be all over the place this morning. I'm going to try to keep it relatively simple. But uh, hopefully, it will be a blessing to you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, we had prayer this morning, and Trent was sharing a little bit. He was sharing out this passage. And he said something that I had never seen before that just uh, went off inside me. So I'm, I'm on the fly here. So this is hot off the press. <laughs> Colossians 1, 15. Listen to the incredible uh, understanding of who Jesus is that's in your Bible. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything He might have supremacy. So, on the one hand, he's, we know today, right, that He's the firstborn from the dead. But, Paul tells us here that He's also the firstborn... Overall creation, and he is the image of the invisible God. And so Trent, we're going to trust his scholarship. He looked up that word in the Greek, and he said that image is not the word that you would typically think of for an image. Like if you look in a mirror and see your image looking back at you. But it's actually a word that uh, means the prototype. And so he went on to explain, you know, what's a prototype? If you think about automobiles and cars, right? When they make a new car, they build a prototype, and then they put something on the assembly line, and so everything's built after the prototype. So literally what Paul's saying is, is that Christ, being the image of the invisible God, but He is the prototype out of which all of creation came. That at the center of everything you find the Son. Now, with that in mind, come with me to Revelation 13. Let's jump around a little bit. And we're going to end up back in Genesis chapter 1. Now, he's, he's, dealing with, he's dealing with, you know, the people that are worshiping the beast here in, in Revelation 13, verse 8. But, but he says, All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast... All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. But watch this. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That's how it's written in the NIV. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That's always puzzled me. How could Jesus, you know... And, and people will use all kinds of you know, predestination arguments that God saw everybody. And Anyway, we, I don't want to get into all that, but I want you to understand something about ancient cultures. Ancient cultures were very spiritual.
spiritual. And they believed that, that everything was happening because the gods were doing it. And none of them uh, really were monotheistic. Most of them were uh, believed that there were all kinds of deities competing with each other and, and what have you. But one of the things that we know sociologically and anthropologically from early you know, cultures is that the firstborn was often sacrificed. Did you know that? That when Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac, he's really following the Chaldean custom of the day. Uh, they, and, and really it was, a, it was a Jewish innovation. It was a Hebrew innovation that God said, the firstborn belongs to me, but the firstborn got to live. And so, and, and something else that you don't realize is anytime a sacred site was going to be built, they would offer a human sacrifice. So if they were going to build a, a sacred site on the foundation, they would offer a human sacrifice to the God for blessing, and the blood of that human sacrifice would form the foundation of the sacred site that was about to be built. You, you, you still do it today, no. <laughs> when you take a bottle of champagne and break it on the foundation stone or pour it on the foundation or whatever, symbolically you're taking blood and pouring it on the foundation. So watch, where did that come from? (laughs) Watch this. When God gets ready to create, God the Son is the prototype and He's the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. So in order for creation to come forth, it required in order for the life that was in the prototype to come forth, it had to be slain. So that creation actually comes out of a resurrection principle. Creation itself. And death, and see we don't like to hear this, but this is just true. I'm just telling you truth this morning. You can deny it, but it's a reality. Death is built into the fabric of creation, and it pre-existed before the fall of Adam. If it didn't pre-exist, God could not have told him, if you eat at the tree, you're going to die. So, with that in mind, come with me to Genesis 1. Are you breathing? You doing all right? Are you sure? Do we need to go over a few pages in Revelation where it says there was silence in heaven for the space of 30 minutes? The third day of creation, I want to just look at that because it's, it's significant. On the third day, uh, we won't... Um, yeah, third day, verse 11 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees. Seed-bearing, not plants that bear seeds, seeds that bear plants. Seed-bearing plants, not plants bearing seed. Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants. So I'm one that believes the egg came before the chicken. Seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and it was the third day. So on the third day, on the second day, there's still just water on the land. On the third day, dry land appears. And when dry land appears, God gives uh, seed. 
God gives seed. And what the Hebrews believed was that the first dry land that appeared was the Garden of Eden. That that's where the Garden of Eden was. Makes sense, right? But Jesus, when, when, right before he's about to be crucified, in John chapter 12, he says this. He said, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth what? Much fruit, right? And he's talking, of course, about himself. He's the seed. He's going to die so that he can bring forth fruit, right? But the principle is, what Jesus is saying is he's saying from the very beginning, death was in the seed. Everybody say, death was in the seed. So he was a lamb slain, so there was death in him for creation to come forth. And then as soon as where we inhabit was, was really built upon the principle of death, but not just death, but death and resurrection. Now, come with me to verse 28, or 27. This is so cool. Like, I don't know if you guys will get jazzed about this. Probably not, but... Okay, I'm just kidding. I just think this is awesome. I mean, God is so awesome the way He does stuff. And the Bible is so cool the way it reveals this stuff to us. Verse 26, God said, Let us make mankind in our image. In our image. (laughs) In our likeness, or in our image, and and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish, the sea, the birds, etc., etc. Look at verse 27. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Now, what do you notice that's different between verse 26 and 27? Let me read it again. Verse 26, Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. Verse 27, God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. What's missing? The likeness. So God's intent was not... Now, is God just waxing eloquent here? Is He just being poetic? Or is He hiding a truth for us? See, it was God's purpose for us, for humankind, to bear not only His image, but also His likeness. But when He created us, we did not yet have the likeness, we only had the image. Because God, I can't find anywhere in the Genesis account where God created anything, or even the principle of nature where anything starts out mature. Or fully developed. In the beginning, God creates the earth and there's chaos and it's without form and it's dark. And the Spirit of God has to hover over it like the imagery there is a mother eagle hovering over her chicks. For what purpose? To bring it to maturity. So it's letting you know that creation itself started out... As a seed. Not in the likeness of what it would become. Then I believe God gives seed before He gives the plants. Because He created it. Do you see, do you see the principle? He, he creates it as a microcosm, as, as a miniature that looks nothing like what it will become. And as death and resurrection works in it, it becomes... So that the principle of resurrection is the release of potential and likeness. So then it only makes sense to me that Adam was not who he was yet destined to be, because he's not yet bearing the likeness of God. 
He just has the image of God. He's the seed, the prototype, but not yet fully developed. And that fits with Jewish tradition and it fits with early Christian tradition. The early church fathers said they were, they were children in the garden. So here's my presupposition that God was going to take humanity through a process. Alright? So Ephesians chapter 1 verse, three, verse 5 says this, that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world for the adoption as His sons. So God had a plan for you that He was going to adopt you as a son. That was His original plan. So here's the point. If Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and we're celebrating Him as the firstborn from the dead, I want to suggest to you that the coming of Christ was essential to the plan of God with or without the fall of man. Because you were chosen in Him to be adopted to become just what He is. So that if either, see, he was the, he was the mediator. He was the, the, the means through which humanity would experience union with God with or without the fall. With or without sin. With, with or without corruption, but not with or without death. <laughs> so, Alright, so I know we say there were two trees in the garden. I don't have time to take you to all the references, but if you're somewhat familiar with the story, you know there were two trees, right? You know that in the story, in the, in the Genesis story, Adam and Eve have to leave paradise because they eat where? At the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And our, our paintings and all this stuff makes it look like it's just a literal physical tree, Right? But again, if I could take you back to ancient cultures, every ancient culture believed that there was a cosmic tree at the center of creation called the tree of life. It wasn't a literal tree, it was a cosmic tree that held everything together. So they're following an ancient pattern when God says there is a tree in the middle of the garden. But here's the thing, God, the scriptures never talk about two trees. We do that in our head because the Bible says in the middle of the tree, or I'm sorry, in the middle of the garden, God put the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we immediately make it two trees instead of a description for one tree. But if you... It doesn't have to be two trees. You make it that way in your mind. It could be a description for one tree, and that fits better with the text as you read it, because through the rest of the text, there's only mention of one tree. God did not put a, a, a angel to guard the way to the tree of knowledge again. He put an angel to guard the way to the tree of life that's in the midst of paradise. And when the serpent comes to Eve, Eve says, he, the serpent comes to Eve and says, has God said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And they said, and Eve says this, that the tree, singular, that is in the midst of the garden, we shall not eat it nor shall we touch it. The tree. Well, later God says it's the, the tree of life that's in the middle of the garden. And the issue of temptation was the likeness of God. Ah. 
The serpent said this, God knows in the day you eat of the tree, you will be like him. Because she knew she wasn't like him. She only reflected his image, not his likeness. So the devil tempts her at the point of her destiny. And he doesn't lie to her. Actually, what he says is, God knows in the day you eat of the tree, you'll be like him. It wasn't a, pro- it, <laughs> it wasn't a prohibition of the tree. It was a prohibition of timing. Do you ever talk to your kids and say, when you get older... You can have the keys to the car. But right now, you shall not drive. And Jeff Britton that was here with us, he told me, he said, we were talking about my dad. And uh, he said, I always remember the parental advice your dad gave me. He said, with the first kid, this is what he told me my dad told him. It sounds like my dad. With the first kid, you tell him, stay away from that chainsaw. When they're little. Second kid, you tell them, put that chainsaw down. Third kid, you tell them, take that chainsaw outside. (laughs) Isn't it true? Isn't it true that there are things that you prohibit your kids from having, not because you don't want them to have it, but because they have not reached a state of maturity that they're ready for it? And God told them, in the day you eat of it, you will die. What if the pathway to the likeness of God... And the likeness of his son involves death and resurrection. What if you and I could not be adopted as his sons unless, like the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, we also partook in the principle of resurrection? But to partake in the principle of resurrection, you must also partake in the principle of death. And since death was built into the creation because it came out of the lamb that was slain and every seed carries the image, the prototype, then humanity also carried the image and the prototype. And the key was to die to good. (laughs) What if the issue about the likeness of God is you have to die to the issue of good and evil in order to rise in an issue of life? What if this cosmic tree wasn't the tree at all? What if what the ancients represented as a tree was actually a person or actually a prototype or an image or the sun in the center of all things, creating all things and holding all things together? What if 
the issue was that God wanted humanity to unite with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, but he had to wait until they were ready to die. But they decided independently. Now, here's the issue. They decided independently that they were going to eat from the tree. Now, watch this. If I take fruit from a tree, what happens to the fruit the moment I pluck it? It's disconnected from its source of life. So if the tree is really Christ, I know this is a radical thought, but just bear with me. If the tree is really Christ, then He's carrying life and resurrection within Him. But if you try to pluck fruit from Him, in other words, if you say, God, I don't need You in my life. I can exist independently from You, and I can take the knowledge that You have and take it to myself and apply it based on my own understanding and consume it upon myself without You, the moment moment I grab the fruit, I separate it from the principle of resurrection. The, so, that, so that I try to decide for myself what is good and evil. I try to decide for myself what is moral and ethical, but I separate it from relationship and union with the person of Christ. Trying to become like Him without union with Him. Trying to become like Him by the knowledgeable application of His principles without the knowledge of union with Him. So the moment I separate the fruit from Him... Paul goes on in Colossians and he says, In Christ is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of them. Is that possibly what the fruit is? Is it possible to take good principles? Because it wasn't just the tree of the knowledge of evil that brought death. It also had good in it. Is it possible to take good principles? And separate them from a relationship or from union with Him. And the moment we do that, all we partake of is death and not life. (laughs) Yeah. We'll get to the good part. And how it applies to our lives. So, so here's what happens. So, so Adam and Eve decide, we'll do this without you, God. And because they separated, then now only death is working in them, not resurrection. And because only death is working in them, they literally, instead of moving towards becoming in His likeness, they literally begin to unbecome. So that God sits back, and if you could look at it this way, He begins to watch humanity spiral in a circle of unbecoming, worshiping things lower and lower down the ladder. Maybe starting with worshiping things like angels or demon spirits who were still lower than where humanity was created to be. But then moving even out of the spiritual realm and worshiping gods that were made in a human form. But then moving even lower to where now they're worshiping gods that are made like eagles or made like lions or made like bulls. Worshiping the creature rather than the creator. 
And the further they descend with the knowledge of good and evil (laughs) inside of them, separate from union with the tree of life, the further they descend into corruption and bondage and captivity to the powers of darkness. So that literally humanity becomes lost to God. So that the issue is never about God satisfying His wrath or His anger. It wasn't like, oh, they ate at that tree. I mean, how petulant would God be to say, they ate at that tree that I told them not to eat, so now I'm turning my back on them. Is that how it went down? Some Sunday school lessons, that's how it went down. You disobeyed, you sin, I'm holy, I can't look on your sin. You deserve death. You deserve destruction. You deserve hell because you didn't listen to me. It's, you know, I mean, that just sounds more like the God made in the likeness of a narcissist. Really, right? Than the God of our and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, see, you've got to understand that without that union, and this is where Israel stuck with the law, because without that union, now God can give them the knowledge of good and evil, but they're still on their own to try to figure out how to apply it. And so they're trying to understand who God is through the frames of good and evil. So that what you have in the Old Testament, oh, Jesus, what you have in the Old Testament is not a one voice of who God is, but you have, you have a... <laughs> You have humanity trying to perceive the image of God apart from God in darkness and death and corruption. And so sometimes you read of God that's good and sometimes you read about a God that's evil. And we say it all comes from God because we're stuck at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God gives them the law because they chose the law, but they didn't choose him. And they're so lost and confused that he's got to give them some idea of what's right and what's wrong. Otherwise, you'd still be sacrificing your firstborn to build your house. Or worse. That went over about like I thought it would. But. Make sense? So now Jesus comes to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost. The sheep that got away. <laughs> See, we read everything individualistically. But, you know, the early church, they didn't do that necessarily. The sheep that got away for Athanasius and some of the church fathers was the human race. The coin that the lady lost. So when so how is God going to do this? He's going to incarnate. He's going to become flesh. Because in the Old Testament, you have a multi-vocal opinion of who God is. Sometimes He's good, and sometimes He's not good. Sometimes He's good, and sometimes He's evil. And you have man thinking that if, if they just choose the good and not the evil, it will lead to life. Not realizing that they're stuck in the same problem, still dead 
See, we've said, we've told people, you can do everything. <laughs> I'm amazed at the image we've created of God sometimes. How many of you heard this gospel presentation? You could do everything right in your life. Everything. You could follow the law perfectly, keep the Sabbath, all that stuff, and then you blow it one time. And you blow it that one time, and it's it for you. Could you imagine a God that, like, finally you have somebody that gets it. Finally you have somebody that obeys every single one of His commands. And then He's still dying from some horrible disease. And He has a bad day and takes the Lord's name in vain. And the Lord says, ah, that's it. <coughs> to hell with you. What is that? So we say, no matter how hard you try, God cannot accept you. The issue is not that. The issue is no matter how hard you try, you're still disconnected from the resurrection principle that's in Him. <laughs> No matter how hard you try, you're still dead. It's not because God said... I mean, the way we picture God, like, I'll tell my kids, don't play in the street. Like, have you, have you seen my kids? Like, it's impossible. It's just, it's just impossible at my house to keep track of them. Like, like, especially Elijah just has kind of, I don't know, short-term memory or whatever. But Elijah, you can play outside, but stay in the backyard where the fence is. If you're going to go anywhere else, at least come and tell me. And ten minutes later, I look out my front window, and he's standing, because there's kids playing across the street. And so he's standing on the edge of the property thinking, can I make it across? And like, our, our, our house is like at the top of the hill, so you know, if a car's coming really fast, and he, not good. But some people picture God. This is what God does. Son, I told you to stay out of the street. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get in my automobile. I'm going to rev it up and I'm going to back over you a few times, teach you a lesson. I mean, it's silly when you put it that way, but we preach this junk from pulpits every Sunday. God had to give you cancer in order for you to get a clue. If God hadn't given my dad cancer, he wouldn't be serving the Lord. He, would, he wouldn't have found Jesus. Give me a break. Like, God's ways are higher than our ways. Don't you think, like, don't you think a God that's, like, incredibly wise and all loving could figure out a better way to get your attention? No, I'm going to teach my son a lesson. Here it goes, here it comes in! There goes God. Be funny if it wasn't so pathetic. This is my Easter message, yes. Be glad. Last year I talked about the phoenix bird that dies. And Anyway, it's also in the Bible. Most people don't know that, though. <clears throat> so the issue is, no matter what you do, you had to be rescued. You could not repent your way. You could repent in the Old Covenant. You could repent and get your sins forgiven. Did you know that? God wasn't playing when He said He forgave them. <laughs> you could do everything right, but the problem is, existentially, you're lost in death. So you couldn't work your way out of it 
Because to work your way out of it maintains the same independence that was authored by the serpent. So if you try to work your way out of it, you still have the venom of the serpent working in your life, even though you're doing good. So God had to save us from death. And He had to save us from the devil. And He had to save us from corruption. And He had to save us from deception. And quite frankly, He had to save us from ourselves. We initiate, at the tree of knowledge, basically a, a, a process gets initiated that was left incomplete. So the moment that the Word of God, the moment that the image of God, the moment that the matrix of all creation becomes flesh, he knows that by becoming flesh, he's going to partake in the death because he's going in, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And because that which was lost is in death, the only way I can seek and save it is I have to go into death myself in order to recover it and bring it back. In the process, he reconciles us with God. Because what he's doing is forming a union between us and God. So that we can be redeemed to still carry his likeness. So that we can be redeemed to become that which Adam never fully became. This upsets people because they, they, you know, we, we, we've taught that, that God just had this bloodlust. He just had to have blood. Why do you think, when, when he said without the shedding of blood there can be no remission of sins, was that just because he required a bloodlust in order to feel better about you, to forgive you? Or was it because of the lamb slain? <laughs> because of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and without you being reconnected to the tree, your sins could not be remitted. And so without the shedding of blood, really all along what he's talking about is his blood. So we have read into the text. I'm almost done, I promise. And it's early. Are you, am, I, am I boring you? Maybe some of you. Those of you that aren't bored. Listen, we read into the text. The Bible says that after the fall of Adam, that, God, that they covered themselves with fig leaves... And God gave them skins. It actually says skins. We assume it's an animal skin. Because in our paradigms, there has to be the shedding of blood. But you have to assume it's an animal skin. Literally, and this bears out with Jewish tradition, it bears out with early church tradition, Literally what happened was because of man's fallenness, God gave him a garment of skin, of flesh, so that he could exist outside of Eden, which was some dimensional gateway between visible and invisible worlds. So that when, because, because death would lock man into materiality. It would lock man into the created order. What God wanted him to participate in was the uncreated. (laughs) 
You're created in his image, but in order to obtain his likeness, something that is uncreated. Because God is totally other than his creation. So now man's locked into materiality, so he needed a way to function in materiality, so God gave him skin. Which means this current form that you're in is not what God destined you for. Which is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood, what? Cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. This mortality will put on immortality. What mortality? This, ah, Jesus. This, God gave you a temporary form of flesh and blood that He would redeem and then transform. Now here's where the rubber meets the road. Death and all that goes with it is an inescapable reality of creation since the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. And you and I cannot bypass the process. Let's look at this, and we'll be done. Literally, what God did in Christ was rescue you and reconnect you to Himself so that you could have life. The issue of salvation is not an issue of righteousness. It's an issue of life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. See, we preach a gospel today, too many of us, that doesn't require anything supernatural in your life. It requires no power. It requires no life. It's just a legal transaction that takes place between people and God whereby they have their sins forgiven. And nothing supernatural has to happen for you to believe a historical event and then believe that your sins have been forgiven. You can do that as an intellectual exercise. And that's how we've reduced the gospel. Rather than the gospel carries the power of an indestructible, resurrected life. And the moment you believe in Him, something supernatural happens on the inside that breaks the power of bondage to death, that breaks the power of bondage to corruption, that breaks the power of bondage to Satan, that breaks the power of bondage to a curse. 
So that when Jesus is alive, they can bring him a man who is laying on a mat who's paralyzed. And he walks up to him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious crowd of the day goes nuts because they say, who can forgive God? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Because they're still eating independently at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they're fixated on the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus says this. He says, which is easier to say? He asks him a question. Which is easier to say? Son, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? What's the obvious answer to that question? It's easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Then he says that you might know... I could really preach that you might know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sin or power on the earth to remit sin. I say to you, take up your mat and walk. And the man gets up and begins to walk. Why? Because in the forgiveness of sin is the power, not of righteousness, the power of life. You can be righteous and dead as a doornail. You could have life and still be in process. Somebody can live a better life than you dead as a doornail. You could have life and be unethical, but you've got life. I'm not saying go out and be unethical. I'm saying Christ came to give you life and life more abundantly. So I love John's gospel. I love it because it's brilliant. <laughs> see, John's not hung up. If you read see, something that, hey, do I go here? Nah, I don't think I need to do that. So John's gospel isn't necessarily written as a biography. Let me say it this way. It's written as a theological statement for a church that's trying to figure out who they are after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Because until that time, they were just a branch of Judaism. Christianity is the only religion I know of that was founded on belief, not race. Romans had their gods because they were Romans. Greeks had their gods because they were Greeks. That's why we call them Roman gods, Greek gods, Norse gods, Hebrew god. Christianity was founded on faith, not race. And so John's writing his gospel as a theological statement. So there are things you read in John's gospel that don't match with what you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because his purpose is not to give you an accurate portrayal of the sequencing of events. His purpose is to reveal to you who Christ is. So that in John chapter 2, you have a wedding feast on the third day. The third day always speaks of resurrection. So there's something about the resurrection principle in the wedding feast. So there's a man and a woman, but they're never identified. And there's a founder of the feast. Gang, it's a picture of the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, you have God as the founder of the feast. You have a man and a woman who partake fruit. We say it's an apple, but in Second Temple Judaism, they said it was a grape. So on the third day, 
Jesus shows up and you've got six. Six is the number of men. They run out of wine. Why? Because in their best attempts to pull it off, they couldn't do it. Because no matter how hard you try to escape and get out of death on your own, you're always going to run out. Water is a picture, especially in ancient cultures, of life. They run out of wine. So what does God say? Or what does Jesus say? <laughs> who, who comes to Jesus to work the miracle? Mary. Who does Mary represent in the gospel story? The seed of the woman. What did Eve say? We don't need God. We can do this on our own. Uh-oh, we ran out of wine. The tree of knowledge, we've expended it. So in the fullness of time when the tree of knowledge, because remember, in ancient culture, the tree of knowledge was represented by a grape. So when they ran out of wine, they had gone as far as they could on the tree of knowledge. And so the woman in the story comes to Jesus. And he says, what do you want to do with me? Because she's the new Eve. Remember, it was Eve that said, we don't need you, God. So now the new Eve comes and grabs hold of Jesus. And Jesus says, she grabs hold of the tree. <laughs> what do you need with me? And what does she say? Whatever he says to you, do it. She completely reverses what Eve had done in the garden. Whatever he says to you, do it. In other words, Mary, oh, Catholics would be very, very proud of me today. Mary is standing as the new Eve, speaking to a new seed. Whatever he says to you, do it. And so he says, take these empty vessels and fill them up with water. Fill them up with life. But something supernatural is that he takes the water and he transforms it into wine. But it's not the old wine of the tree of knowledge. It's a new wine. It's, it's the best wine that's been saved for last. It's, it, it's a picture of humanity when they say, whatever he says to you, do it. Getting plugged back into the vine. I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you abide in me, you'll bring forth fruit. And if you don't abide in me, you're, you're going to be cut off. Why? Because you're dead. You're good, but you're dead. You're ethical, but you're dead. You don't lie and cheat and lie in your taxes, but you're dead. But if you abide in me, oh, the fruit of... The new wine, the resurrect. What happened? That water resurrected. The wine in the feast resurrected. Hallelujah. And the master of the feast tastes it, who represents God and says, you've brought the best wine out. Come on, Buddhists have good principles. They do. They're doing more to transform the West than some Christians. Believe it or not, oh, this is going to get me crucified. <laughs> but I might as well say it. Not every Muslim is out to kill you. And not every principle that they have is wrong or bad. And there are some Muslims that believe in Jesus. I'm not embracing Islam in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> 
Secular humanism has gone on us a long way. I like my air conditioning and my, you know, all the fancy stuff we could do. And my iPhone I don't really care for, but because Surrey cannot understand me. But anyway, that's for another day. Trent's convinced that I just need to take a class on how to use Surrey. But I'm telling you, she just can't understand my accent or something. But anyway, what's my point? My point is that all that wine waxes old. Buddhism waxes old. Islam waxes old. All the wine that God tastes, there's only one wine that he says is the new wine. There's only one wine that he says is the best wine because it's the wine that reconnected you with the tree of life. It's the wine that reconnected you with the prototype who stands in the center of creation giving life to it and holding all things together. And here's the best part of this is that God will not leave you to yourself. No matter how far you descend, God is coming after you. No matter how far and deep away you may go, God is hot on your tail. He is scouring the universe for one lost soul. He's not waiting for you to repent to forgive you. He already forgave you in Christ. And He's on a passionate pursuit to track you down and to hunt you down and to rescue you from everything that's conquering your life. Because here's the reality. Life at times sucks. There are traumas that happen to you. There are circumstances that you absolutely cannot control. We went and saw the movie Miracles from Heaven on Tuesday night. It was absolutely gut-wrenching for me. Absolutely heart-wrenching. I thought, man, this is torture. No, seriously. Because you're, you're, getting, you're getting an inside view of a family and a child fighting a disease that makes no sense. And the toll that it's taking on a family. And here I am with my two little ones thinking there are no guarantees, are there? There are no guarantees. It may be the rarest disease in the world, but there's no guarantees that you won't get it. There's no guarantees that your child won't get it. And I sat there and literally wept through the whole movie. And because it's called Miracles from Heaven, I knew that she was going to live. They would have called it something else. Teardrops from Heaven or something. If... <laughs> so thank God for the title. Because I hadn't read anything about it. But I couldn't help but walk out of there and think, for every child that gets healed, there's hundreds of thousands that don't get healed. And as much as we want to say, talk about signs and wonders and miracles, we're not. No, my shadow hadn't healed anybody lately. Not quite at where the book of Acts is at. And I'm thinking, so here we are on a day that we celebrate resurrection, and yet we're going to leave the four walls of this building, and we're going to go back, and we're going to face the realities of the traumas that happen to us in life. One of, the, one of the best things I've ever had to do as a pastor, and one of the absolute worst things I've ever had to do as a pastor, is funerals. Funerals for people that shouldn't have died at the age that they died. People that were murdered. People that took their own lives. How do you do that? How do you stand up? We were, we were just at one. Someone that came to our church that most of you never even knew or ever met his name. Or knew his name. Because he would come in and he was quiet and he would sit in the back and he would come late and he would leave early. And the only reason we knew that he died was we saw it in the obituaries. 30-something years old. Took his own life. 
What do you say to that family? Happy Easter. I'm telling you, there are cold, hard realities of life. And most of us spend our time without God, without Jesus in our life, without being connected to the tree of life. I don't know how people do it. Because most of us spend our time trying to figure out how to cope with the anxiety that we're just not in control. And I walked out of that movie saying, thank you, Jesus, that you gave us some testimony that there is life after. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us some testimony in that little girl's story that what we believe is not just a, a mental crutch that we use to get us through life and help us cope through, through difficult situations. But I walked out of there saying, I have to do better. I have to do better. You know, one of the things, I know I'm a little bit out of the box for most preachers. You know what drives me? What drives me is situations like that. What drives me is thinking about the next little boy or the next little girl or the next tragedy or the next accident. And I say, God, your church is not producing the new wine. God, your church is not producing. We are living with the resurrection principle latent inside of us. But for some reason, we're not walking in the fullness of it. And there are the stakes are too high and the situation is too critical. And, and and so, and so it drives me into the Word of God. And it drives me into the place of prayer to say there's got to be keys. And there's got to be answers. And there's got to be mysteries that can be solved that will plug us even greater into the tree of life so that we can manifest the resurrection principle that's on the inside of us. It drives me day and night. But regardless, so, so my point is this, my point is this, death happens in life to all of us. It may not be the death of a loved one, it might be the death of a job. It might be the death of a relationship. It might be the death of a dream. But death happens to all of us and you cannot escape it. You will be disappointed. You will be let down. You will be traumatized. But inside of every death is resurrection. Inside of every death is life. Inside of every trauma is transformation. See, you've got a choice. When trauma happens to you, when death happens to you, you've got a choice. You can at that point reject God and reject the tree and reject the image. And in your brokenness and in your bitterness and in your confusion, you can give up on whatever it was that God was doing in your life. Or you can make a decision. I will not waste my sorrows. If death is coming, I will embrace it not because I'm... What do you call somebody that enjoys pain? Thank you. 
Not because of that, but because I, but because I understand that this is an opportunity for transformation if I can embrace the resurrection on the other side of the tomb. And the only way you're going to find it is to stay with Jesus. You ever feel like God's a million miles away? Did you know it's at those times that you are most experiencing union with Him? I was puzzled this week because like God was nowhere to be found. I'm like, God, Easter is the biggest day on the church calendar. This is our one chance to catch the Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day crowd. Because I never know when that person sitting in the back row is going to have such a bad day that they're going to be tempted to take their own life. So I take every meeting very seriously. And I said, God, where'd you go? And to be honest with you, my, my communion times, devotion times, whatever you want to call them lately, have been really dry. I'm like, God, where are you? You know what God told me? God said, Aaron, I'm most with you when you cannot sense me as an other. I'm most with you when I'm so inside of you. You have no sense of my presence. You only feel your own. So God... I'm not going through anything bad. He's just teaching me. When are you most with me? When is he most with you? See, if there's one question you have to answer in counseling more than any other when you're dealing with Christians, where was God? Where was God when I was being raped? Where was God when I was being sexually abused? Where was God when I was being traumatized? Where was God when I was sick? Where was God when my children were sick? Where was God in the midst of all this stuff? And, and, it, and it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy because it's like, it's like in those times, in those times when death is hitting, it's like that's when you can't seem to find God. That, that's like, it's, that's when it seems like He's the furthest that, that He could ever be. Like He, He doesn't even exist. It's like you would think the times when you most need to sense His presence. It's the times that you can't sense His presence. Why is that? Because He loves you so much that when death strikes you, He says, no, I'll tell... That, that He united with you in order to rescue you. He had to unite with you in your death. And you can't feel Him because to feel Him in the midst of your death would mean that there would be an other and He isn't close enough to you. He isn't close enough to you in that moment if you can sense His presence. He's only close enough to you in those moments when you can't find Him because He's so, he's so close to you that He's inside you. That as you're suffering, He's suffering. That as you're weeping, He's weeping. That as you're lost, He's lost. That as you're in darkness, you're in darkness. That as you're crying out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He's hanging on the tree, the cosmic tree, and crying out for you and with you in the midst of your situation. My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? But if you understand 
Man, I'm not saying God caused it. I'm saying God rescued you and redeemed you and is plugging you in to resurrection life. And sometimes you just got to hurt in His presence even when you can't feel Him. Sometimes you just got to hurt in His presence even when He's a million miles away. Sometimes you just got to hurt and know that He's hurting with you. Sometimes you just got to suffer and know that He's suffering with you. Sometimes you just got to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and say, no matter what, I will fear no evil. Because even though I can't see the light in the midst of the darkness, He said, never will I leave you nor forsake you. And even though I can't feel His rod or His staff, By faith I know it's there. And by faith He's not going to leave me in the shadow of death. Because the Gospel has declared for every human being. And I am not excluded from that. And you are not excluded when the Gospel says, Those who sit in the shadow of death shall see a great light. I wish I had a church in here. There is a resurrection principle on the inside of you. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you're going to face tomorrow. I don't know what I'm going to face tomorrow. I don't know how dark it's going to get. But the one thing I hope and I pray to God that I will remember when I'm in the deepest valleys of my life is that it may be Friday, but Sunday's on the way. And I may be dying right now, but there is resurrection life on the other side. And it's the cost of greatness. And it's the cost of His life likeness and it's the cost of his glory and it's the cost of the new wine but no matter what I'm going to hang in with Jesus but you know what even if you don't he doesn't leave you even if you walk your way and shake your fist at God even if you join the crowds that were crucifying him he still sits there why were there nails in his hands because even when you're cursing him he says i'm not going to fight you why was there nails in his feet because even when you're running as far away from him as you can he says i'm not going to turn you may be running from me but i am not going to turn and run from you why is there a hole in his side Because His heart is breaking and being poured out for you while you're rejecting Him and piercing Him and wishing that God was dead. Which is why. Thomas, where were you? I don't know, Lord. Thomas, feel my hands. Thomas, put your hand in my side. Even when you were running, even when you didn't believe, even when you thought everybody else got a resurrection appearance but me, I didn't leave you. I showed up because I was looking for one lost sheep. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't quit on us. Sometimes you ever wish God would just quit on you? You probably don't have a calling. If you have a calling on your life, you wish God would just quit on you at times. It's true. You wish God would just leave you alone, let you go, give up on you, quit talking to you about that stuff. Go away. Just be here when I need you. But he doesn't give up on you. 
No matter what, He doesn't quit. It's amazing. Let's bow our heads. There's a principle of redemption. There is a principle of healing. There is a principle of resurrection. Come on, some of you, I, I know I wouldn't preach this today if some of you weren't going through it. Or maybe you came out of the fire years ago, but you still smell like smoke. You know what I'm talking about? The residue of that thing is still haunting your life. Some of you have been running from God, and you don't even know it. And somebody that loves you brought you here today. (laughs) Because God's saying it's time. He's knocking at the door of your heart, knocking at the door of your life. I mean, how long are you going to let the chase go <laughs> before you realize he's more stubborn than you are, he's more determined than you are, <laughs> he's faster than you are? <laughs> you ain't going to outrun him. <laughs> he will wrestle you down. With his love. Not to get you to do something for him, but because he wants to do something for you. Because he wants to rescue you. So if that's you, I'm not going to have you raise your hand. I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm not going to call you down to the front. Just right there in your heart, it's the heart issue that matters. It's the heart issue that says, okay, God. I'm not going to run from you anymore. God, I thought you abandoned me. But I'm going to choose to believe that you didn't abandon me. God, I'm scared to death about what tomorrow holds. Because I see so much pain and sorrow around me. But I'm going to dare to believe that whatever it is, your power is great enough to overcome it. And whatever I go through, I'd rather go through it with you than without you. I want to do life with you, Jesus. I don't understand you. I don't always like you. I don't always like the things that you do. But I'm going to do life with you. Because you've chosen to do life with me. I'm tired of trying to figure it out by myself. That's all you've got to say. You don't have to admit you're a sinner and, oh God, forgive me. Just, Lord, I'm ready to do life with you. Now we do want to give you an opportunity to receive prayer if you would like. So I'm going to invite you to stand up. I'm going to have the prayer teams come down to the front. And I'm going to pray over you. And uh, there is a healing presence that's here. So if you have pain in your body, today's a good day. This might be your day that God touches you. If you have pain in your heart, today's a good day. This might be the day that God touches you. And if you're full of assurance and 
faith, then be a rock for somebody. (laughs) Be a voice of stability for somebody that you know maybe isn't as blessed as you are. Let's stand up. Well, I shared my heart with you. I hope it helped you. <laughs> some, I, I just know I feel it so strongly in my heart. Some of you are really going through it. <laughs> some of you are really going through some tough times. The person next to you doesn't know it. Other people in this room may not know it, but you know you've been going through a hard time. Man, don't give up. Hang in there with God. He's hanging in there with you. There's a, good, there's a new day. There's a resurrection. There's life. There's transformation on the other side. Just don't quit. Father, thank you for your people that are here. Lord, I, I pray that your blessing will just be upon this word. I, I pray that your blessing will be upon your people. Father, I, I pray that today that there will be something that shifts over lives. Yes, Lord, something that shifts over lives. Lord, that you've not planned failures. You've not planned defeat for us. You've not planned, uh, Lord, that we not overcome everything that comes against us in this life. You've made us more than conquerors. You've made us overcomers. And so, Father, I'm asking for us today as your people that you would bless us, that you would pour out your goodness in our lives, that we would see your goodness manifested in our daily lives. Father, I, I pray for your people that they never have to go through horrible situations, but, Lord, we know that's not reality for many. And so I thank you, Father, that whatever the enemy throws, that whatever life or death throws at us, that we have a God who is greater, that we have a God whose love is bigger. And so, Father, I just pray that in this season in our lives that you would be magnified, that in this season in our lives that you would be glorified and that you would help us and that you would help your people. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.